Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In today's episode, our three stories are all about COVID-19. We will talk about the Moderna vaccine, which scientists say appears to be 94.5% effective against the coronavirus. We will also talk about why Delhi's third wave may not be over, despite what its deputy chief minister claims. But first, we talk about the long-term effects of COVID-19. Early on during the pandemic, the symptoms that people mainly focused on were cough, fever, tiredness, and shortness of breath. Later, things like loss of taste or smell and diarrhea were also added to the list. Though it was thought that once a patient recovered, these symptoms disappeared. But doctors are now saying that for many patients, symptoms like fatigue, headaches, insomnia, shortness of breath, body pain, and lack of appetite continue for weeks and sometimes even for months after they recover. These are being described as part of the long COVID syndrome. And these long-term symptoms also seem to include mental health issues like anxiety, depression, and psychosis. In this segment, we talk to Tabassum Barnagarwala, who reports on Health for the Indian Express, about these mental health issues and the reason they affect COVID-19 patients. Tabassum, we now understand that a lot of people who have recovered from a COVID-19 infection are facing long-term consequences. This is also being termed as the long COVID syndrome. Could you talk about what are the major symptoms that people are facing in this regard? Yes. So um, initially, uh, it was assumed that a lot of ICU admitted cases, which were critical and on oxygen support, suffered from uh, long-term problems like you know fibrosis in lungs because they're put on high volume oxygen for several hours at a stretch. So initially, we were seeing cases where people had lung problems, required rehabilitation exercises. They suffered from breathlessness and fatigue, and uh, they couldn't walk several steps without panting. But now there is increasing evidence of people who are suffering from not just lung problems or heart problems or kidney problems as a result of the virus attack, but they're also suffering from neuropsychiatric disturbances. Now, it is not known whether this is going to be permanent or is it is going to last for only a few days or weeks. But there is increasing evidence of people coming with complaints of insomnia, stress, panic attacks, and anxiety. And what kind of studies have been done so far that have looked at this problem? Um, there are still very few studies in this segment. Uh, there were some initial studies that came from China, which looked at a small cohort of patients. It, there was one study which looked at 99 patients and they found that at least in 9% of those 99 COVID patients, there were some neurological changes. They had, um, you know, small problems like anxiety. They couldn't sleep properly. Those were the initial studies that came. But now there is definite evidence that there is some neuropsychiatric disturbances which happen because there is a Lancet study which came about last week, which found, which, you know, what it did was they basically looked at 62,000 patients of COVID-19 in the United States of America. And they found that at least one-fifth, which is around 18.1%, had neurological disturbances. They are not looking at how long this will continue because it's just the start of the pandemic. We've just seen eight months of it in India. So we still have to wait for several more months to get clarity on whether or not this is going to be permanent in nature. So what are the reasons that doctors are attributing to these mental health problems? As in, 
what do we know about why this happens previously uh, even the ancestors of covid-19 which were sars and mers even then there were some neurological changes that were being seen there were there were anxiety problems insomnia and stress that patients were suffering after recovering from the infection much earlier about 100 years ago when we had the spanish flu which hit the entire globe we did see patients there were there were uh, basically autopsies done on uh, dead patients and there was brain damage found and uh, recovered patients complained of signs similar to parkinson's disease and they also com- some of them also complained of ocd which is obsessive compulsive disorder we spoke with one neuropsychiatrist in mumbai his name is dr rajesh parekh who's also written a book on covid-19 uh, so he's explained what exactly happens uh, you know when the virus enters the brain the virus attacks cells which are rich in ace2 receptor and neurons are known to be rich in ace2 receptors so because the virus is able to enter cell after cell inside the brain and take over these these cells which are rich in ace2 a lot of cognitive functions or functions of the brain which are related with say um sleeping with memory these things are getting disrupted so patients are now complaining of memory fog which is basically they by afternoon they forget what they had eaten in the morning and they have to really strain their brain to figure out what they ate in the morning small small things people who were not used to you know sort of getting tired at all are now getting tired they they get panic attacks if there are a lot of people around them so we've spoken with um, mlas and doctors and recovered patients who said that they were facing this huge string of problems from anxiety to depression to gloominess uh, they they were losing that feel good hope inside them and these are all because the virus is attacking different parts of the brain which have the ace2 receptors so how the virus affects the body internally is one part of this i suppose but how much of these mental health problems might also have to do with you know just how uncertain this time is and how the pandemic has been affecting our friends and family exactly so there are different kinds of patients that are coming up one uh, is the category where i spoke of how the virus affects the brain now there are other categories also there are people who already have mental health issues say psychosis or depression now in these patients the immunity level is already always down these patients are always going to be vulnerable to different kinds of infections covid-19 is no exception so when they get infected by covid-19 their mental disorder is further aggravated so for example if a person suffers from depression and he gets covid-19 chances are the likelihood of him suffering more depression you know phases of depressive uh, this thing will increase because the virus acts on their immunity system and their immunity is already lower also the pandemic has led to a complete economic slowdown there are people who do not have jobs there are people who are um, on the verge of unemployment and there are people who are just uh, suffering from you know lack of socialization so the whole dullness in their life because they are not able to socialize so these are external factors which are then going to affect patients so a person who is already known to be anxious will have anxiety attacks if he is living alone in a flat uh, and if he suffers from covid-19 so doctors are also seeing this external factors uh, shape the mental health issues in covid-19 patients and does this also mean that if you already have mental health problems you might be at a higher risk of getting covid-19 yes so there are studies which are now discussing um, this particular aspect where uh, patients who have existing mental illness are showing aggravated issues 
so even in the lancet study which spoke about how 18.1% of the total patients that they surveyed had some or the other kind of mental health issue they found that there was a segment of people who were diagnosed with some mental health issue a year ago and their mental health issues got aggravated this year after they suffered from covid-19 so they actually found that people had um, psychotic episodes people had uh, depression and people had anxiety attacks so these are like the three most common symptoms which are now emerging in patients who had existing mental health issues and even a completely new diagnosis in other category of patients in your piece you also write that doctors told you about something called survivors guilt could you talk about what that is uh yes so because covid-19 is a easily transmissible disease it spreads very easily from one member in the family to another member so we know of cases where the entire families have been infected there is one person who is suspected to bring the virus home because that person travels more often outside and that person gets the virus to a senior citizen in the family and that senior citizen pass like you know dies the whole chain of how the virus transmits and then the hospitalization and then the death of one person is causing guilt in the other members of the family so we have seen cases where you know for example a husband survived and his wife died or vice versa or a son lost his father and they are suffering from guilt because it was they feel that they are they were responsible and they could not do anything about it this is not just covid 19 we will we will find that this happens even otherwise in in other kind of illnesses where say a patient has cancer or tuberculosis and the family feels that you know they could not take care of the patient so that survivor guilt exists in other kind of diseases also but it is more pronounced in covid 19 only because of the sheer ease of transmission that the virus has so a person feels that you know they got the virus home and they transmitted it to their loved ones and that is one of the most common symptoms that doctors are now seeing that patients are coming back to them and saying that you know we've lost a family member and you're not able to cope with the stress and the guilt and then they are counseled and this usually requires the entire family counseling because the entire family is suffering from some or the other uh, mental health problems in this case and is there anything that doctors are advising patients to do things that they can do to avoid or reduce their chances of getting these symptoms yes so the whole counseling component is now getting stronger i believe across india uh, doctors are realizing that it's not just covid and the effect it can have on your body but it is also covid and the effect it can ha- have on your mental health so earlier because the burden was so massive doctors actually didn't have time to do individual counseling but now because the cases are reducing across india doctors especially in private hospitals are taking out time to talk to patients and explain to them that you know it is possible once you go home you suffer from a lack of appetite you suffer from insomnia you get irritable easily and you have to look out for these signs there are also some hospitals which are counseling families as well because the family support is a very important component in this whole process so family needs to understand that a person may not behave the same way as they did before they had covid-19 the family has to handhold if a patient does not want to talk about his experience in hospital they should just let the patient be if the patient wants to talk about his experience in the hospital then they should just listen patiently to whatever he has to say a lot of psychiatrists also told me that some covid-19 patients tend to overplay their emotions so the family also needs to understand that you know the patient may exaggerate something which has not happened 
and they need to patiently deal with the whole episode um in most of the cases however they are prescribing anti anxiety pills and um, antidepressants but on a brighter note uh, doctors are telling me that the mental health disturbances are not very common in patients a person's personal immunity and strength also makes a huge difference so for example in fortis hospital uh, intensivist dr rahul pandit told me that he's seeing this in only 2 to 3% of his icu admitted cases which is a very small percentage other doctors are telling me that it is not that common in india as researchers are showing that it is common in um, western countries for example europe and usa so i think it's not something which every person will suffer from but patients should definitely look for signs and seek treatment as early as possible Dear listeners, before we move on to the rest of the show, I just wanted your quick attention. One of the big reasons people say they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better. It provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture. And there is perhaps no other place that does that better than Indian Express's explained section. We on Three Things refer to the section regularly and it helps us make this show. If you're a regular reader of Indian Express, you know how useful the explained section can be, especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts. You can log on to indianexpress.com/explained and access the coverage 24/7. Explained by Indian Express, where news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject. Now, back to the show. Next, we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. Last week the American pharma company Pfizer had announced that early analysis showed that its vaccine candidate was 90% effective against preventing COVID-19. This was good news because some of the best vaccines in the world like that of measles are also around 90% effective. But this week the American biotechnology company named Moderna announced that its vaccine candidate had shown an efficacy of 94.5% with these two american giants moderna and pfizer releasing information about the effectiveness of their candidates people remain ever more hopeful about the future of a successful covid-19 vaccine in this segment prabha raghavan who reports on health and pharma for the newspaper joins us to talk about in what way both these candidates compare with each other Prabha says that although Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine candidates are similar in the technology that they employ, there are differences between the two. So one important thing to note is that from the information that has come out, it looks like the Moderna vaccine candidate seems to be a little more effective at preventing people who are injected from being diagnosed with or developing a uh, symptomatic covid. So that's one thing the difference is you know maybe like a 4.5 to 5 percentage point difference in the effectiveness of the two vaccines the second important difference she says is the temperatures at which both the vaccines need to be stored according to the information released by moderna their candidate does not require the kind of low and cryogenic level of temperature that pfizer's candidate does so it can be stored at you know temperatures of about negative 20 degrees celsius which is again it is a very deep freeze temperature that is that's a very low temperature but compared to the pfizer candidate which has to be stored at say anywhere between 60 degrees uh negative 60 degrees to negative 90 degrees celsius 
the the kind of of deep freeze technology that would be required for the Moderna candidate doesn't seem to be as difficult to procure. Prabha says that this information is particularly important for India because minus 20 degrees is the temperature at which the polio vaccine is stored. This means that when it comes to the Moderna vaccine, India might already have some available capacity. For Pfizer's candidate, building capacity would be a lot more challenging. Plus, when it comes to storage, there's one more thing to note about the Moderna vaccine. Another important thing that they did say was that once you take it out of the deep freeze temperature, you can store it at refrigerated temperatures of anywhere between 2 to 8 degrees for up to a month. And that's that's a huge deal for countries that are probably dealing with logistical supply chain issues of storing their vaccines and making sure that they maintain the integrity of that vaccine at a specific temperature until it reaches the end user. So that's one thing that gives the Moderna candidate a potential edge over the Pfizer vaccine. Now apart from the effectiveness and requirements for storage, Prabha says that the other difference between the two is that with Moderna we have a little more clarity on the kinds of racial groups that have been responding positively to it. And that's something that we didn't have as much clarity on in the case of the Pfizer vaccine even though it did say I think um there was a mix of 42% of those tested in the Pfizer late stage trials seem to be representative of different racial groups in the case of the moderna data at least what we're seeing is maybe a little more clarity in the breakup the, the fact that they're saying that the vaccine appeared to be equally safe and effective in hispanic black asian or multiracial subgroups that also potentially gives us a little more clarity on the kind of vaccine that moderna has come out with um and how effective it might be across different races and different populations so that's also a crucial difference to look at between the two vaccine candidates the other difference to consider are what these two vaccine candidates are likely to be priced at prabha says that although we don't have much clarity on what the pfizer vaccine is going to cost the new york times however did come out with an estimate where they've looked at how much the US government is procuring doses of the Pfizer vaccine for and that comes down to a calculation or an estimate of about $19 a dose for the Pfizer vaccine whereas we know from what Moderna has said about the pricing of its vaccine that it is much more expensive it's priced anywhere between 32 to $37 for different governments so that's the price at which Moderna plans to sell this vaccine to different governments around the world. So we know that the Pfizer vaccine in that way is cheaper. When it comes to whether India will get its hands on these vaccines, the government doesn't have any agreement with Pfizer. And Prabha says that there isn't much clarity on whether the government is in talks with Moderna either. But she says that there are issues that vaccine experts have cautioned us about these two candidates. and their prices are a major factor for a developing country like india according to the estimates we discussed earlier the pfizer vaccine could cost around 1400 rupees a dose and moderna could cost around 2500 rupees a dose 
The other issue is, of course, the complicated cold storage requirements. Also, the fact is that even though, say, India has the technology to store the Moderna candidate at a negative 20 degree deep freeze temperature, we have to also remember that this capacity was built for our regular immunization programs for polio vaccines. And when you're trying to scale up our existing infrastructure to cater to hundreds of millions of people, as opposed to, say, 10 or 20 million children every year, you will face logistical uh, and infrastructure problems. So even though we have maybe the capacity to store, say, 20 million doses potentially of this vaccine, we don't really have much clarity on how many doses we can actually store of a vaccine like this. Um, At the same time, we also know that if we need to vaccinate 200 to 300 million people by next July, this vaccine candidate potentially may not be the best option for a country like India. Also, when talking about these vaccines, Prabha says that it is important to note that these are still early results. Another nuance that we have to be aware of is the fact that the data that has been released by Pfizer, by RDIF, which has been talking about the Sputnik V vaccine, and by Moderna, is the fact that these are all press release information. This is not information that has been published and peer-reviewed yet by other experts. So we're yet to see the fine print where this information is concerned. And in the end, we talk about the COVID-19 cases in Delhi. The capital is currently the highest contributor of daily COVID-19 cases in the country. Last week, it reported over 51,000 cases and since Friday has recorded more than 90 deaths per day. On Sunday and Monday, however, Delhi reported about half the number of new cases of coronavirus. Delhi Deputy Chief Minister Mani Sisodia also claimed that the third wave of infections in the capital had peaked. But this might not necessarily be the case. Amitabh Sinha, who reports on matters of science and environment for the Indian Express, and who has been extensively looking at the coronavirus statistics, joins us to explain. So on November 11th, uh, Delhi had recorded more than 8,500 cases, which is the maximum till now, not just for Delhi, but for any other city in the country. 8,500 has never been recorded by any other city. Now, after that, for the next two days, the numbers have come down after that, November 12th, 13th, 14th. But there were still more than 7,000 cases on each one of those days. For the last two days, the numbers have been almost half of that number. Uh, Sunday, it was about somewhere around 3,200. And Monday, it was about 3,800 or something. So it's almost like half of what was being reported in the last week. But it's not surprising considering that the number of tests have also halved. You know, the number of tests that were conducted in the last two, three days, that's almost half of what was being conducted in the previous days, in the last one week. Delhi has been collecting fifty to 60,000 samples every day. But for Sunday and Monday, these numbers were less than 30,000. So as of now, this reduction in the number of cases that we have seen in the last two days seems to be directly connected to the low number of 
tests, that there seems to be a very direct correlation. As far as the deputy chief minister's statement saying we are past the peak, thing is we might as well be past the peak, but as of now, it's too early to say so. What has just happened is that, yes, from the 8,500 number that we had reached on November 11th, the numbers have come down after that, but they're not very substantially lower if you look at the next few days. The numbers have been around 7,800, 7,200, 7,300. So they are not significantly down, and there is every possibility that they just might rebound and go up again. After our conversation with Amitabh, Delhi's COVID-19 cases for Wednesday, that is for yesterday, were reported. And they did in fact go up. Delhi reported over 6,300 cases, and this is because the tests were increased as well. So in this regard, the statement made by the Deputy Chief Minister definitely comes under question. A similar statement had also been made by the Delhi Health Minister Satinder Jain, who had also said that there was no chance of another lockdown in the city. However, the Delhi Chief Minister Arvind Kejriwal yesterday sought the power from the centre to impose lockdown in market areas, which he said might emerge as possible hotspots. He also said that a proposal had been sent to allow only 50 people to attend wedding ceremonies as opposed to the previous limit of 200. You were listening to Three Things by The Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Shashank Bhargav, and as always was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. Before we go, here's another reminder to check out Indian Express's Explain section. You can log on to indianexpress.com slash explain and find in-depth analysis by the right experts. It has everything you need to know to understand the news better and see the bigger picture. If you like this show, then you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it, share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at indianexpress.com. 